morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is episode three in our second series of We Are Alchemists, and I'm very happy to say I've been joined by Chorley, my regular co-host, but also Dr. Martin Heisberg, who's head of research at Uphold. Um, so yeah, that's my brief intro, Martin, but I'll let you do the rest. If you want to talk a little bit about the work you do at Uphold, and then we'll crack into blockchain and advertising as we usually do. Thank you very much. I think everybody knows the work I do. I, <laughs> I answer questions when we going to list Baby Doge and stuff like that. <laughs> when are Twitter. you going to list Baby Doge? Oh God, no, don't, don't let me start. <laughs> no, I, I am responsible for defining the, the strategy of blockchain integrations and what we do with blockchain rather than just randomly listing tons and tons of tokens um, that then nobody ends up buying. Yes, to take a much more considered approach, I think. I'm working with communities, engaging with communities, and one of the strongest ones is obviously the whole Constellation uh, community out there. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of experience with that because we were the only one that kept XRP throughout the crisis and the lawsuit, and that sort of taught us the lesson, the worth of, of having a community and the support from, from people all over the world for a specific project. And... It's my job to present Uphold in the right light and also give input to Uphold from what people want, what they care about, and what they're passionate about. And I think that's what I think stood out for us when we started speaking to you was like how seriously Uphold are taking the blockchain space. It's obviously a very serious company in the traditional finance space, but realizing the opportunity in blockchain and expanding it basically for the average holder, you know, that... We, we are very, very different from your average crypto wallet or exchange in that uh, we don't come from the crypto side. So Uphold, mm. the background of Uphold is traditional finance. It's, it's Wall Street brokerage and, and the City of London finance people who thought that crypto was a worthwhile path to take. And that's why we are working with XTC and trade finance and the banks. And that's where we're working with Constellation. We're trying to solve problems, yeah. not just type your next board Ape NFT and <laughs> your next meme coin, uh, but really looking into what can be done and what problems can we solve and what tokens should we list and what integration should we offer in the Uphold wallet that makes sense that solve people's problems, right? Yeah, I think that's very wise. You know, there's always been like a, something that's in vogue in crypto, you know, as ICOs, DeFi, then we've kind of seen NFTs, particularly in 2021, kind of come from nothing to billions of dollars in trading volume. And I think that the next obvious move there is if you've got like the fundamentals have been created and the kind of underlying infrastructure has been created in those first two hypes, you then get culture from NFTs. And now it will be, as you say, solving real world issues. I mean, it's why we founded Alchemy was to... Mm solve the issues that are facing advertising for advertisers, for media owners, but also for three of us sat around the table who use the internet. Yeah, the, the NFT craze is actually a good example how Uphold works. Um, when, when the Bored Ape thing happened and, and some, some time in I think January, suddenly people realized there was a proper company behind it, Yuga Labs, and it was mm. Andreessen Horowitz, really, I think, the biggest firm in crypto out yeah. there for venture capital. And people suddenly took it seriously, both the hyped crypto crowd and serious investors. They, they looked at board and said, I don't know what it is, but 
Andreessen Horowitz is doing it, so there must be something to yeah. it. And everybody started writing into our support channels and, and, and bugging me on Twitter, when are you going to have NFTs on Apple? And the first thing that we did was not look which NFT marketplace could we build because mm. there's... I told I told my my boss in in I think in February everybody's going to have an NFT marketplace. You're going to have NFTs on Solana, on Near, on one day on Cardano, and, and look what happened. Now we have more NFT marketplaces than we have apes. Yeah. And so what we did we 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 took the NFT concept and the hype around the NFT art, and we our compliance department at Apple is bigger than all the other the next four departments put together. <laughs> so okay, it's mostly yeah. about this. So we looked at NFTs and said, what could go wrong with them? Mm. You know, you could have a problem with money laundering. You could have a problem with abuse and, and scamming people through NFTs. And we made a, a sort of, as you would say, a shit list of things that could go wrong with NFTs. And at the end of it, we decided, okay, we don't want to do this. This is too risky. If we do NFTs, we are looking for another solution. And so we ended up with the void and, and looking yeah. into that uh, aspect. And so th what, whatever Apple does, it comes from a very strict risk management position. Um, we also look at what does the coin do? Who are the people behind? You know, most exchanges, they look at the tokenomics mm. and the white paper. I don't even bother to read white papers because they're just marketing speak. That's what the people want you to know. I look at the people behind it. Who are they? What did they do in their, in their past life? Right? Mm. What was their career path? Uh, and I try to meet them. Yeah. So I'm uh, I personally, I'm most comfortable if people come on one of my webinars at Uphold and I get to know them. I get to talk to them because as much as we love blockchain and, And the anonymity and traceability and trustlessness of blockchain, at the end of the day, we need to work with people. Mm. And if you can't look somebody in the eye and say, I trust you and I like your project and I have confidence that you're, you're a good manager and your company will succeed, then why bother with that token? If I can't tell who you are and where you are, what you're all about, then I'm not going to take the risk. Yeah, and I mean, we've actually kind of hired employees that way, you know, people that... And what I loved about starting a crypto project was there was all of a sudden a trade in value that can happen. You know, you got back to more of a bartering system where I can help you with this, you can help me with that. And then we both benefit, which is like, was refreshing to me coming from like a software sales role. It's like, how can I get this in front of you quickly? So you get your money out super fast and that's it. Very transactional relationship. But yeah, we've had, I mean someone started recently who we met in like the very early days of Alchemy's kind of work with us, understood it. So when he joined, he was part of the furniture already, you know, it's like been amazing to see how a community can get involved in the right way. And I mean, it's how we got involved in the start, you know, we just DM'd some admins and got our white paper in front of Ben Jorgensen and the team. And now here we are today sat in our office, which is kind of crazy, but... It's a lovely office, by the way. Thank you very much. I think your office is bigger than my office in Soho. <laughs> we're not in Soho. We're, we're in outer London borough. So, yeah. What we lose Slightly in access, lower we gain in space. Yeah. <laughs> Although the Elizabeth line's connected us a lot more. We've got another advisor that's now saying that Farringdon is the de facto ad tech capital of the world because it's now linked by one stop to Soho, which used to be the ad tech capital of the world. Yeah, oh, really? 
and oh, then okay. and then twenty minutes to uh, Heathrow. Into Heathrow. Yeah. So well, I had a taxi drive on the way here, and I know not, I know everything there is to know about Arsenal taking over your borough. <laughs> <laughs> we moved from Woolwich. Yeah, nice. The history of Arsenal. That's it's, it's crazy that he's an Arsenal. He's in North London driving to. I think we're in North London. Um, Driving around complaining about Arsenal. That's like very unpopular. <laughs> if I'd gone in his taxi, I might have had to complete strangers, yeah. Two complete strangers uh, on the taxi. I bet he's a Tottenham fan. Yeah, I bet he was a Tottenham <laughs> fan, yeah. Or a West Ham fan. Yeah. Uh, Classic. Another move to North London, though. Speaking of, of, of football, uh, we are looking at things like that at our board, you know, things that solve people's needs. We're talking to the, this project called the Fans Token, mm. and Simon, the, the boss Simon, is a very good friend of mine. And there are lots of things that a wallet should do, both for the institutional side and for people's actual needs. So we, yeah. are, we are brainstorming at the moment about a lot of ideas that could come in the future to, to the wallet. And that would be a wallet not as a place where you buy and sell crypto, but that sort of solves all your personal finance and identification needs. I would like a wallet that has my health records. I would have. A, yeah. I would like a wallet that has my, my my airline tickets and my boarding passes. Right. I don't need the Apple Wallet mm. on the iPhone. I have already have a wallet which has, which has a KYC process and identification process, and then I'm in control of all my data. If I add a bank account to that, if I add my land registry, ownership, insurance policies then I have control over my life through a wallet application. So that is something we, we are, yeah. we are talk, we're thinking about. And then you allow access. Then you decide who gets to access what part of your data, right? I'm, if I'm going to the hospital, they don't need to know my Bitcoin address, right? Mm. As where I'm, when I'm buying Bitcoin, they don't need my health records. And with that kind of access in the wallet, then I, I can do that. And we are doing the same for institutions and for different companies, uh, we're going out there and listening to people, what is your problem that maybe blockchain or crypto could solve? And I feel like that's one of the kind of original use cases for crypto, isn't it? It's the private data that you can store, it's encrypted, it's yeah. on-chain, and it's always been the sort of promise that's never been delivered. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is uh, Inrupt, which is obviously Sir Tim Berners-Lee, like yeah. previous inventor mm. of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and his uh, current current project is uh, to work with governments to make yeah. government data like on-chain, but available to the user yeah. wherever they need it. Yeah, And it's just quite interesting that you mentioned that because it's 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 always been the promise that's not been delivered yet, that, that key product that is probably the killer use case. And it's interesting because it like the the frameworks there in is it China they have Weibo or is it WeChat? We, Weibo, yeah. WeChat and Weibo. A lot of functionality and send payments like you do on Venmo, messaging, sell stuff. But you see, at the same time, this is exactly the the contentious point of it. On the mm. one hand, we want this total use ease of use in one wallet. On the other hand. What is happening in China is that is actually used to control people's yeah. spending habits, their movements. Uh, we do not, for example, want a, a central bank currency like mm. the digital yuan, where it's only being used by the government to spy on people. Yeah, what are you buying? Where and are you buying stuff that could harm the harmony of the of mm. the Communist Party? Um, and about a year ago, um, almost two years ago, when CBDCs became a hot topic, then. Bank, central bank said, no, we need this. We need digital money. 
And then immediately people come and say, no, we don't want that. We do not want to control our population. We do not want to know what you buy at Asta, right? And, and so there is, there is a, a philosophical discussion of how much control would a government have by issuing a digital currency. It's not all the hype that you read on crypto Twitter, Well, you got, I mean, look at Canada when the truckers... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A case they, in they point, right? Stopped your bank accounts if you sent 20 quid to your son that was yeah. protesting, you know, like it can be done already. And I guess that's the beauty of blockchain. Whereas if you control who can see what you can do, but you can use all that functionality in app, it's the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Yeah. It's just that the, the implications of the technology, and that's uh, part of my job is to think mm. about these things The implications of blockchain technology for society at large are something that most crypto users and, and your, your average Joe on crypto, on, on crypto Twitter, doesn't know about. Right? Mm -hmm. They have their favorite coins. I think COVID has a lot to do with the tribalism of totally, crypto, yeah. by the way. We were locked in our basements and our living rooms for months and months and we needed to belong and Our journey as human beings, you know, we, we, we left the cave, then we lived in the tribe mm -hmm. and we knew everyone, right? Yeah. We belonged there and then we belonged in villages. And then when we moved to cities, we already were a bit lost in the big city, right? There's lots of stories turn of this last century about people moving from the countryside to the city and, you know, ending up in, in, in poverty and, and, and dying in the big city because it's an alien, it's a huge space and we feel lost in there. And now we're facing the metaverse. How lost are you in the metaverse? I mean, mm. there's infinite possibilities, there are infinite universes and we feel even more lost. So what you need is to belong to someone, to a group, but you also have to feel unique in that group. And this mm. is what I think the Bored Apes stuff is about. Yeah, it's a good right? point. You're part of the yacht club, but you've got your own ape. Yeah. Right, this is a it's a it's perfect marketing. Yeah, and there was a really interesting uh, take from a UK comedian called Jimmy Carve, or people. Yeah. <laughs> and his theory was that the natural condition for a human being in today's society is to want to be famous because of that feeling that you have when you're supposed to live in a village with a hundred people and you know every person. Yeah. If you're a celebrity, that village feeling where everyone knows you in a room oh. of a hundred people yeah. happens all the time. Oh. So that's why I think then with your point about bored apes, like, yes, you have your unique character, but that also comes with some fame. I sat next to a chap at dinner who owned a few bored apes and it was the logo of his hedge fund that he was trying to start. Yeah. And he said, if he ever joined a Twitter space and put his hand up, To speak, he always got asked to speak purely because he had a bored ape. So it's like to well, me. Well, that's usually the types of my Twitter spaces that I that I ignore yeah, <laughs> or remove yeah, from yeah. my Twitter spaces. It's it's kind of like nation building, isn't it? In a way, yeah. it's got that same sort of like it's you have exactly. to have a shared history, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we had that with the nation states when all the empires fell apart a uh, hundred years ago, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the British Empire fell apart, mm. and suddenly we were alone and lost, and then these. These smaller units built their identity. They invented countries. I mean, mm. I was born in Austria, and, and that is a completely artificial country. Right? It, it didn't exist before. It was part of an empire that fell apart. Uh, it, there was, at after the First World War, when the, the, the Austro-Hungarian monarchy fell apart, there was this tiny bit of German-speaking empire left. Mm. And the absolute logical conclusion was that 
we speak German, we call ourselves, we should join Germany. And that's what the whole thing with Hitler and the annexation happened because mm. it was, it, it seemed the logical thing to do at the point in yeah. time because all the rest of the empire was gone. Yeah. So there were people who said, we cannot survive alone, we are too small. And look, we built a whole country and a whole ideology and the idea of being Austrian and singing in the Alps and being Julie Andrews and, and all that stuff. We, we built a whole nation. And the same is happening in Taiwan. The same is happening in Texas. Yeah. Texas had its own very strong identity and politics and religious attitudes because we are lost in the bigger states. Mm. You see that so much in the European Union. I think we... The fact that Britain left the European Union is 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 a point in case, right? Mm -hmm. The identity is different. You're thinking about it feels much more comfortable for many people being British and being more linked to America than it feels being European. Yeah. And the more I the more time I spent here, the more I understand why Brexit happened. Yeah. Right. It's so different in many ways from the rest of Europe. Completely. Like yeah. Very. I mean even down to the language you know like the, yeah. the joke is that if you're british you can go to europe you don't need to learn another language because everyone yeah. speaks british so we yeah. did always have that uniqueness within the group and yeah. never had to integrate in the way that i mean the guys that we have in france speak french german yeah. russian you know like have a skill that no one really in the uk has bothered yeah, to yeah. master you know i used to be a diplomat when i when i started in that career everybody told me oh you have to learn french because the french they do not speak english anyway mm. i have never met a french diplomat who didn't speak absolutely fluent english that was educated at oxford or cambridge right yeah <laughs> they were and the only people who don't speak another language are the british diplomats <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so it's one of these cliches. And then yeah. you've got Scotland. I mean, what, what is that about? Yeah, you were looking back your own history. You are building an identity that's built on an ideal that doesn't exist. There's nothing. Sp sorry, forgive me, Scottish people, but there's mm. nothing special about being Scottish, right? About wearing tartans and and, <laughs> and, and eating haggis, down. right? Yeah. It's we are all making up these identities because we are lost in this world. We're lonely, and that if you look at People on Zoom brought that home. You know, you call the CEO of XYZ and he's at home in his living room and there's a, there's a toddler on his arm. Yeah. And suddenly the humanity, COVID and, and these virtual meetings, they brought back humanity. Yeah. I had a conversation this morning with uh, Vice President of the Bank of America and he was in his, he was grilling. He was, he was in Sydney and he was doing steaks. He put, he put, what did they say in Australia? A shrimp, a, shrimp on, yeah. a shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think how we segue into advertising, but yeah. <laughs> I think like... It is, no, it is the same in, yeah. in, in advertising. I, pay, I used to run a marketing company after, in, in my other life mm. and advertising and, and marketing have a lot to do with identity. That's very true. Right? Propaganda. And, yeah. Propaganda identity. And I see, you see that on, if you travel, if you're always stuck in the same place, you always see the same advertising. Yeah. When I move from Zurich to London and I open my iPhone and I don't block the advertising on purpose because they tell me something about the, the place I'm being yeah. in. I see ads where I can only guess why I am being shown this ad. Mm. Um, there are some, you know, some of them are very obvious because when I was back home, I was looking at hybrid cars. Somehow Google remembers that I was looking at hybrid cars. After that, I got several spam emails from car dealerships. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, last Sunday, I landed at Heathrow and I turned on my phone and the first ad I saw was for a Toyota Prius dealership in, in, in Slough. Yeah. And so how did, how did Dickens would Google know that I'm interested in cars being in, in the UK now? If not them knowing about who I am and my identity. And so Absolutely, identity yeah. comes into it, right? It's the power of their single sign-on, you know, is that it follows you everywhere. And I think people Google stuff without realizing, and that's where you're like, this phone's listening to me. But yeah. it's also like most search bars are Google search bars. So yeah. you don't even have to put it into google.com. If you search anything on a website anywhere, it's probably either mm. them or another company called Captify who also yeah. do similar similar sort of stuff. So if you if you type anything into a search bar, you're basically giving someone some information about you. Yeah, and search ads is probably still one of the largest categories of digital oh. ads. You know, it's very competitive to get your site on Google's first page organically. I mean, I think it's, I've lost a bit track of what Google is doing since I left the marketing part, but I see, I, I, I think that I'm being shown ads based on what I'm simply what I'm searching for. Yeah. So there must have been, they must have strengthened the whole, the way the algorithm works. That's, and uh, I'm not comfortable with many of the things I'm being shown. Mm. I don't know why I suddenly have an advertisement for, for example, Brazilian waxing. And it turns out I went to your place and there's a waxing studio out there and somehow it knows my GPS location. Now I'm being shown uh, masseurs and, and, and yeah, <laughs> Brazilians. It's a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I think when it's too much, and I think particularly on a device as personal as your mobile phone, you know, uh, like I speak to my partner on there, I speak to my parents, you know, like it's a... I, do my banking, a lot of stuff that's very private and personal to me. When you have a message that perhaps you weren't expecting from an advertiser or feels foreign to what you normally see on your phone, it's jarring. You know, uh, you notice that. Whereas the advertiser is a bit more respectful. You understand why you've been shown an ad because you've consented for certain parts of your data, yeah. which you could do with a blockchain wallet. And then it's useful, you know. Like, and much of it is completely wrong, misplaced. Exactly. We. I travel between New York, London and Portugal because that's where our three centers for our polar. And when I'm in Portugal, I'm being shown city holidays in London. Yeah. When I'm in London, I'm being shown holidays in Portugal. I work there. I don't need to go there for yeah, holidays. Yeah, yeah. I'm there all the time, you know. So they are totally mistargeting. And and for, for the advertiser, that means most of their advertising budget is spent on nonsense. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that's the kind of problem with sort of ROI, yeah, sort of DR advertising, like the direct response that just looks for a click from somebody because actually probably what's happening most of the time that isn't a human clicking on that. Mm. It's, it's probably a bot. It's probably yeah. like, yeah, farmed out somewhere yeah. on a fake website. So, you know, they've created a fake website. They've got the bots on there that apparently, you know, want to find holidays in Portugal and they always click the ads and that yeah. place is more effective and therefore gets more traffic and therefore yeah. obviously gets more money. So like it's quite a vicious kind of cycle that is created through false incentives. Mm -hmm. It's like if you're incentivizing people to click on something because you get paid, then it's quite easy to fake that. And if you Google it, pun intended, you can see that <laughs> there's, if you Google click farms, you know, like you'll literally see a room where there'll be people just going through clicking on ads or there'll be like a little... Wallace and Gromit type gadget that's mm. just spinning around and just yeah. flicking through pages and clicking the button every time. And yeah. there was a story, I, it was somewhere in Europe, but like there was a bot farm that had walked away with like a hundred million dollars in 
fake click for pay-per-click advertising, you know, and the industry solution to that was, okay, if you go to our website and you do forward slash ads.txt, there's a text file of all the approved buyers, you know, like notoriously very easy to copy text files, you know, yeah. like that's what they're, if that's all they're looking for, you spoof yeah. the URL, you have your fake ads.txt file, all of a sudden people think that you're verified traffic. I mean, you even, there was a story, forget the publisher, but the publisher themselves was mislabeling URLs to achieve higher or lower bids on particular websites. Wasn't it somebody who represented Breitbart, I want to say? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, I tried yeah. Google it, so I don't. Breitbart was part of their network and obviously they couldn't sell that traffic very easily. So yeah. they just labeled it as something else within their network. Yeah. And then obviously it became more premium inventory straight away. And there's no way for anybody to know that. If you're mislabeling something at source, then... I it's mean, a huge it. money-making scheme for Google. Of course, they're proud of it. It, it, it was a revolution when it came out. I mean, mm. Google took over the world for, not, for, for a reason. It, it revolutionized the advertising business. But there's so much going wrong with it now. And I think it was Martin Sorrell who said, you know, half of your advertising budget is wasted, but you don't know which half, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's exactly the point. The advertisers aren't happy with the results. <laughs> And the people are being shown the advertisements are not being happy with yeah. it. And the media owners aren't happy because they're not making any money. Yeah. You know, it's like the whole intended value exchange, which is a media owner provides you with free content. You visit that free content. And in exchange for that, you see some relevant advertising because that's how journalists get paid. That's how engineers get paid. That's how the UX designers get paid at the publisher. Yeah. And I think where so much value has been sucked out of the system, you've seen more ad units appear, more intrusive ad units. Uh, You've seen more salacious headlines. You've seen clickbaity headlines, uh, you know. It's like 10 celebrities that walked over a puddle today is an article I've seen live, you know, like... I noticed one, ridiculous. one yesterday that is the clearest form of completely hidden advertising that 99% of people will not catch on mm. to. It's a very reputable crypto news website. And it has a very objective, good article about a project. Um, and the headline started with the word, so it's a description of the project afterwards. It says, it tries to change uh, gaming in the metaverse. So mm -hmm. it's got your SEO words, gaming and metaverse. Yeah, take, but take. before that, there was the word undervalued. Right. I cannot imagine that the actual journalist or editor put the word there that must be paid advertising. Just inserting the word undervalued metaverse gaming project XYZ, right? Because it's this is the perfect form of advertisement. You don't have to declare that this is a paid ad, mm. but it so obviously is because if I read that, oh my God, it's undervalued. I need to buy it now, right? Yeah. That's <laughs> subliminal, the perfect form of advertising. That's, I spent a lot of time selling like sponsored content and branded content and the big issue that we had was a lack of disclosure that it was paid for or in partnership with. And a lot of the negotiations that we used to have was like specifically saying it was an ad as the author and like that was contentious, which makes sense to me because like the other alternative is a PR company, right? Where an editor at TechCrunch, let's say, writes an article about you and you get like organic PR, but that's largely inefficient. Like yeah. branded and sponsored content allows you to get actual page views, you know, that allows you to put across a different message and is an advert that looks like the content around it. You know, that's why Instagram's ads are so good because their ads look exactly like a regular post. It's yeah. kind of... Yeah. 
That's another very and crazy people, story, but and, and people don't care. Yeah, I, I did. I did some exercise with my students when I taught marketing, and I asked them to it was some report and some topic and to Google it and come up with the results. And oh, I, I think we had five or six groups of students. They they delivered their report, and all of them uh, reported the main findings based on the first one or two search results mm -hmm. and none of them realized that those were paid ads. These are students in a business school. I mean, and can you imagine yeah. what your average internet mm. uses? They, it says sponsored. What does sponsored mean? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? When you think about how many people have probably bought fake products from those placed ads and the box is hardly, you know, it's meant to be a white page with like slightly off white boxes at the top. They're yeah. definitely not now. They just yeah. look exactly the same as everything yeah. else. It yeah. just says like ad, very tiny words. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's like another area where the EU had to kind of come in and regulate against Google because they were just letting them do that. They weren't checking URLs that people were landing on. They weren't making sure that other people's brands were safe. They were just doing whatever they wanted because it got a click. There's, there's something I always wondered about Alchemy Exchange because you obviously you have to sell your product to advertisers more than the consumer, right? If you want to stay in business, if you have to have a profitable business model. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, Alchemy offers more control, more data for the advertiser. They love that, mm -hmm. more insights into how their advertising dollars are spent. But you're also offering more control for the consumer. Mm. I think that's the last thing that the advertisers want. Well, so how do you how do you strike a balance between these two? I think the the thing for the advertiser and like what they find out about the user is that generally over time they've they've learned that people don't like being targeted, people don't like their data being stolen, they don't like to feel like they're being taken advantage of. And that's obviously helped like things like ad blockers come in. But really, like what they want is to know that their ad was seen by a human and mm. had some sort of effect. So they don't really care about the non-viable traffic. Like if there's non-viable traffic, they just don't want to pay for it. They want to know who saw what, where and why. So it's it's more that they would rather have the path like of their actual transaction optimized so that they know what's happening at the other end and who's in involved in that chain mm. than they do about necessarily just having data for the sake of it. Mm. Um, and that kind of control to the user gives them a better actual understanding of what is effective. And what I'm, I'm, I'm torn between what I want as a, as a consumer. Uh, I, I will always remember that movie minority report, right? Mm. It's the thing that did strike me about that, that his data is being scanned, I think, to his contact eyes. his, his yeah. eyes, the iris. Mm -hmm. And he walks along and advertising changes on the walls based on who yeah. he is. So I was thinking, just as I arrived on, on Sunday, I was, I was thinking about that. You walk through Heathrow Airport and you're being shown lots and lots of advertising. I mean, it's okay, I'm being told, this is the London Eye, I need to visit it. Mm -hmm. But then I got an advertisement for a charity project in Namibia, why am I being shown that at Heathrow Airport? I don't know. Then I'm being shown an ad for holidays in Italy. Mm. I've just arrived. I'm on the way off the plane into London and they want to send me off to Italy immediately. And then all the gateways say HSBC. Uh, okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> so 
do I want that or do I want to arrive and be greeted by name by the avatar as I walk past and say, hello, this is your 15th trip to London. You like X Benedict. Here's the latest restaurant for brunch and X Benedict in Soho where your company is. Yeah. And do you know, on the one hand, I would love more targeted advertising. I'm not, I'm not this privacy protection freak that many people in the European Union are. This GDP, for me, GDPR is the biggest nonsense ever. It's crazy. In yeah. many ways, it's crazy. It's, it's, I hate it's clicking on this. It's very good for lawyers. Yeah. I hate clicking on every single web page. You click, allow cookies. Which cookies do you want to allow? Yeah. Just, it's and then they so list annoying. the ad tech companies. Like, do you want cookies from Critio, Magnite, Teeds, <laughs> Unruly? It's like, I don't know who I don't know who are. these people are. Exactly. No, I think. Like, I don't know. But it, yeah, I think, it's funny because a lot of it is from just legacy deals from relationships that people have. You know, there'll be a guy that has sold the ads in Heathrow forever yeah. that had deals with someone at HSBC yeah. and they just do it every year, you know, like it will yeah. just, and it'll be for a year because it's difficult to change the stickers everywhere in HSBC. Yeah. You know, I think like there's funny deals and relationships left in advertising that are from mm -hmm. like a yesteryear, you know, when it was the deal terms were signed on the back of a napkin and then you toasted it over two bottles of red wine in a pub in Soho somewhere, you know? There's an amazing thing in our modern economy that is based on very, very ancient treaties. Did you know that KLM used to fly many routes completely unprofitable And those were based on ancient shipping routes. No way, really. They had the right to fly to certain Asian airports. It was the only European airline for a while yeah. that could fly to Taiwan or to Denpasar and stuff directly from Europe because there used to be a shipping line from from uh, Amsterdam, from Rotterdam yeah. to to Jakarta. In like two, 300 years ago, right? <laughs> so we have all these legacy systems that, that still impact on, on how we do advertising. Exactly, yeah. I think that's the... I think it's interesting what you were saying about you don't actually mind that you have targeted advertising. And I think the, the, the difference between what exists right now and possibly the future, alchemy future, of targeted advertising is, is that zero-proof knowledge. The, uh, the idea that rather than my information just being exposed, right? It's like mm. literally getting changed with the windows open. Do you know what I mean? The blinds open, everyone can see everything. Whereas in reality, like somebody could ring your doorbell to verify that you're there rather than having to look through your window at everything that's going on in there. Yeah. So it's that kind of difference where people don't mind their knowledge and their data being shared and that bringing, you know, targeted advertising if they know that it is secure and if that that isn't just going into some data pool somewhere that is then getting aggregated and their email address is attached to that information everywhere so they know that you looked for, you know, your favourite porn star on Google or wherever it might be. But it's like that is the thing that <laughs> Talking about porn stars, like. one, of, one, of the, one of the weirdest things in advertising was when there was a gay dating app called Scruff that for years showed ads for nappies on the gay dating <laughs> was Pampers ads were displayed in the gay dating I was like what the fuck is this? Were, they, were they adult sized or were they <laughs> <laughs> for the fetish crowd oh yeah, my god yeah. that might have been it you know yeah. <laughs> it might have been the SEO type of fetish because yeah. <laughs> I remember there's a big um, advertising conference in Cologne in September every year called Demexico yeah 
And on the first day, the biggest queue for the booth is Pornhub. <laughs> so it's called Traffic Junkies, the business that owns that. And they sponsored every ad above the urinal in the toilets. <laughs> and the copy was everyone's favorite porn crossed out site underneath. And I was like, okay, I'm going to queue up and just speak to these guys because I want a t-shirt, be quite funny. And then I was like asking them about their audience data. And they were like, yeah, we get 75% of Americans come and visit our site. We get umpteen billion impressions every single month. Yeah, it was like insane. Like, I, mean, I didn't think how many pastors of all the search <laughs> data they have about like what type of porn that you search for. Yeah. You can imagine what they can infer from you as an individual, but it's just tough to sell that to advertisers, unfortunately. Yeah, there's actually a great book that I would recommend to everyone, which is called Everybody Lies. Um, yeah. And it's a, a guy who did some research into search data. And he started off on Google, obviously, because that's uh, yeah. readily available information. And that is quite revealing in and of itself. But what was even more interesting was the search bar in, on porn sites and like what people would search for. <laughs> and it's something obscene. Like yeah. <laughs> since, since you were talking about porn websites... I, I was a consultant for the Austrian Tourist Board, the Vienna Tourist Board. And we have so many pictures of, of um, so many paintings in museums showing titties. You know, it was, it was the rage, you know, in the 19th yeah, yeah, century. Yeah. And so Facebook banned them all. You couldn't show the portraits of famous paintings from Klimt and Kokoschka and all these art yeah. that was going on at Fantasy Eccle in Vienna. So the Vienna Tourist Board, they, they opened an OnlyFans site. <laughs> so you can go to you can pay to see the content of Viennese museums on OnlyFans and they have they have thousands of followers who pay for to see their content I bet it makes them a fortune it makes them a fortune it's a fantastic revenue stream uh, like that. Play. Yeah. but it's the last thing you have thinking. to really th talk about thinking out of the box right yeah, totally <laughs> thinking outside the box is the most undervalued strategy ever. Right? Yeah, because I mean, uh, similar to OnlyFans, but like a lot of publishers went down the paywall route, which yeah. is annoying, you know? It's like, so annoying. I, I pay for the Financial Times because it's a lot of content. I get a lot of different content that I'll read, but I'm not, yeah. not going to do it for the Telegraph or no, the God, Wall Street no, Journal. No, no. Yeah. I, I think the FT has a point, you know, they have very, very unique content and good exactly, research. Yeah. But there are, there are just a few of those. Yeah. I mean, I need to read the Wall Street Journal because I'm in it now. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the New York Times and the Financial, but almost all other publications I can think of, they, mm. I would never use them through a paywall. I do admittedly have the Telegraph. You but, do? Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually the... New York Times, but I think like I think I got those on the cheap like, mm. for a year subscription. I have so. a weird New York Times subscription. I pay one dollar a month. I've been paying that for years. I yeah. don't know if if somehow my data got mislabeled. Yeah. I've never been upgraded to full membership. I still pay one dollar a month or two dollars two dollars a month. Yeah. One dollar at the moment, but I think it was only for like a few months. I'm a few months and you signed off. up. It was for <laughs> life, and yeah. it was the weirdest yeah. thing, right? So you remember with um. Uh, Conde, your old employer, they were like, if you sign up for digital membership, we'll ship you the magazine for free. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> it was absolutely obscene. And yeah. it's like, that's what's costing the money. Do you and know we, what, a, what the cheapest subscription with the highest value is National Geographic. It costs like $95 for a year. Yeah. It's a beautiful magazine. They ship it to you in print, in digital. It's ridiculously cheap because they have so many subscribers. Yeah. Millions of people. It's interesting. I do think, like, actually, getting magazines is, 
I know we're in a digital space and everything, but it's so cheap now because they've yeah. still got the presses, they still need to do the printing, they're yeah. still like obliged to have yeah. those magazines. And those magazines, are, to be fair to someone like Colin Nass, are still part of the brand. Yeah, like, true. It's the physical object that gives Vogue value, but at the same time, it's like when they you can get a subscription and it's something yeah, like £2.50. Pe- they're NFTs already, aren't they? Yeah. I talked to a lot of people uh, in, in my job and I noticed that... Uh, vast number of very successful top brass in many companies, they arrive to our webinars and they, or to a meeting and they still have a little notebook and the pencil in mm. their breast pocket. <laughs> I'm, a no, I'm a normal notepad guy. It's squared notepaper. I can draw diagrams. Helps with my long addition and division. Um, <laughs> means I don't forget stuff, but yeah, I should probably have a digital version. But I don't know. There's just not one that's any good yet, is there? I mean, no. We've been looking for a while. We checked out that remarkable... Two or whatever. We I know I've been seeing it. ads for a thing that yeah. feels like paper to yeah, write yeah, on. Is that it? Is that, that yeah, remarkable? Yeah, yeah, remarkable? I thought of buying them, but it's like eight hundred quid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's too I much that, for a yeah, piece exactly, of paper yeah. that feels like, like paper. I can get an iPad Pro for that. Like, what are you talking? About? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Um, and I think again, if if you could surface that data, you may well get recommended other challenger brands to Remarkable that solve that issue because it's something in your mar- in the, you're in the market for. And I think the, the funny thing is when we talk to anyone that doesn't have a huge pool of first party data, you know, like logged in to their platform with an email address that doesn't change, they have like a long-term marker for the period yeah. of that person's a member. Everyone else is kind of guessing, you know, like it's all probabilistic based off of, okay, this person visited these 10 sites, not even this person, this alphanumeric key, which is a cookie, visited these 10 sites, clicked on this ad, spent half an hour on this kind of content. We think that my person might like Adidas. How know? valuable is the amount of time you spent on something? I mean, when does it end? I sometimes go on a website, then I get a call. Mm. And like two hours later, I'm, this, this website is still open. Is, is that counted as the amount of time I spent on that yep. website? I clicked on by mistake. And now yeah. I'm suddenly interested in garden furniture. It would be, yeah. I mean, the the definition, there's, so there's something in advertising called viewability, which I hate because it's not a word. The word is visible. <laughs> um, but we invented viewability. And yeah, it just is spelled in a weird way. Like, yeah. My favorite, my, 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 not favorite, <laughs> the most ridiculous neologism of this year is upskilling people. Yeah. You just fucking train them. You don't need to upskill them. It's like we already have a word for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We already have a word for that. I think the one, the one that really annoyed me, I was in America and they were like, pardon my reach. I was like, the word is excuse me. It yeah. already exists. Like you don't need to make up a sentence to say one word. Yeah, that does make me laugh actually, that one. That is a very American thing, isn't it? Yeah. Pardon my reach. It also comes from the consulting industry. I, I worked for a big organization. We, we paid the Boston Consulting Group a million, a million pounds for revamping our corporate speak and the best they came up with was instead of ending an email with best regards simply say regards <laughs> so not even your best that, one that, that, yeah, not even not around. even my best yeah. <laughs> just my average everyday yeah, yeah, regards yeah, yeah. You know? imagine having the front to turn up to a meeting and make these suggestions though it's just like oh yeah I've got some great ideas super serious face like just yeah. lose best just Do send best. regards yeah, yeah. Uh, we think this will Upskill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Upskill and make, and make your messaging more viewable. Yeah. They, what they wanted to do with this manual is they wanted to streamline. We did that 
uh, people working in 70 different countries. So it made sense to teach them some English writing skills in that. And to not be too verbose and copy fragments from your own language into, into your English communication. But what they ended up with is telling people to be extremely rude. Mm. So instead of, in regards to your last email sent to me, I'm very happy to, so instead you should write, you sent me an email on the 5th. I am excited. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. It sounded completely artificial and rude most of the yeah. time. <laughs> and it just, and I think it's, it's in that, that happens when there's like a lack of innovation. I think yeah. is you just, wrap something up as something different and saying it's like new and improved upskilling rather than training you know it's like, what is it new or improved you know what we heard the other day it was like dog shit wrapped in cat shit dog shit wrapped in cat shit yeah that was a good one yeah won't say who that was about yeah it's like we've uh, we've got no new ideas so what we've done is we've repackaged the old ideas into this, this new wrapping paper yeah great. but we're back to you know solving problems for users yeah. if you just come up with some marketing speak and you know most crypto projects fail because these are very talented coders sitting in their basement coming up with code and think they invited they invented the new facebook right mm. they did not they don't do any competitive research right they come up with the, what they think people need without asking people what they need mm. and that's what's wrong also with these consulting firms and with advertisement. I can do this. That's what Google is about. I can do that, so you must like it now. As, yeah. as you said before, when we chat, you said, if you build it, they will come. No, they won't. Yeah. They don't know where you are. They don't give a damn if you are the, the 573rd NFT marketplace. They're not going to come. Right? Yeah. So this this is what's, what's failed. And this is why I, I like talking to you guys in Alchemy, because... Yeah, I had this conversation over dinner the other day with one of our investors and he, I, he wanted me to talk about Constellation and, and he said, it's all very good, it's very mathematical, it's very scientific, <laughs> but what's it good for? And then I gave him an example and I talked about alchemy and he said, oh, WPP, I used to work for WPP, I, I'm in the advertising space, now you're making sense, right? So you need to find a subject that people understand. Yeah. You, you, you would not be able to market Constellation by talking about the mathematical formula behind the hypergraph, right? Nobody's yeah. going to get that. Yeah, I think it's that thing of, um, uh, we, you say, it actually came from uh, NFTs, but it's like, don't don't just tell them, show them. So yeah. like the, the problem that you've got with NFTs, as an example right now, is there's no utility. Yeah. But you can sit there and like to talk about forever the amount of utility you can add to an NFT. Yeah. But the problem is no one's doing it right now, yeah. right? So how do you convert people to understanding like the wide range of things that come with an NFT? Like we're talking about the culture and all the other things, as well as utility when you can't show them utility. It's one of just my, like one of my favorite projects for NFTs is a company called Chorus. They're based in Amsterdam. They're doing NFTs. So you're actually buying an NFT. What you're doing is planting a tree and you get the, it, they have apple trees and pears and cherries and stuff. And you actually get the output and you're giving land and a means of income to farming communities. And they're doing this with teak wood and stuff. So you own a tree in a forest. And there's another project on the XRP ledger that's called uh, Ripple Reefs 
Like I talked to, to the guy and that yeah. saving the oceans with NFT. So th there you have utility and use cases and then it makes sense to me. But what, what does a board ape do for you other than make you feel important in a, in a yacht club that you don't belong to and you will never be in that yacht club because you yeah. lost all your money with the lunar crash, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> might have bought you a house already. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> well, then there was the other story of Jenkins, the valet in the board ape club, you know, like they that was quite fun. create, well, they raised a load of money off the back of that, I think. I yeah. Did the book come out? Yeah, I, don't I think know. so. Yeah, they raised it. So, he, if anyone doesn't know, Jenkins the valet allegedly didn't make it into the Board Ape Yacht Club, but he knows all of the secrets from the Board Ape Yacht Club. So, Board Ape owners have been asking Jenkins to write stories about their particular ape and just like probably just more of their persona being transferred what, into what the ape. Is, what is special about an ape? It looks different. Is there a what stories behind an ape? What am I missing? Well, Jenkins makes it up about this, them in the, the the actual board ape yacht club. They didn't pay their membership and got kicked out, and that's literally well, rubbish, like fan it? fiction, basically. Oh god! <laughs> yeah, I fun. mean, that's that is always the problem, isn't it? It's like the there's a lot of projects who are like, oh right, oh we probably need some utility, and the utility at the moment is swag. Which mm -hmm. I mean, we love swag. We yeah. create it all the time, but yeah. at the same time, we don't sit around pretending that's utility for alchemy exchange yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think there's this kind of like real yearning to like it for it to be something more, but in reality, that's not what it was designed to do in the first place. So you're kind of backwards, like engineering something yeah. to mm -hmm. have that utility, which is obviously what the other side's all about and other deeds and all of that kind of part that goes with it, which as far as I can tell is uh, somewhere based around sort of sandbox or something, but yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. So they've just kind of like lifted something that already existed, like created utility by giving something to the people who already have a board eight, but that's not, that's not real utility in any sort of like meaningful sense, is it? I mean, it's not like you can actually like poke your board ape and do mm -hmm. something with it. I right get these now. messages from projects that find me on Twitter and they listen to some of the webinars on Twitter spaces that I'm on. And they come to me with message, they message me on Twitter saying, I know you don't like what we're doing, but could you do a Twitter space? <laughs> <laughs> And then show me the use case, you know. <laughs> show me the use case, please. Uh, there has to be something about your project that's more than a lazy line or, or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, we've uh, we have gone down a bit of a rabbit hole recently, and just like sort of just out of interest, you know. It's like yeah. everyone's talking about NFTs and them being the future, and there is there is quite again a lot you can do with them. However, no one is doing that right now. And I think they that's are. What's interesting. They are. I'm talking to a, a company in San Francisco and the British Museum and and a number of other museums on NFT collections of existing old art and artifacts. So that's that's a very good use case. So you don't have to fight over the Elgin marbles. You can fight over the Elgin NFT marbles. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually just um, won a whitelist spot. I think the photographer was called Dave Grower or something similar and what he's doing is he's selling old negatives of like very famous moments of history that he pictured yeah. and then if you get one of the certain rarities he'll send you like a, a negative that's printed so like have an actual real bit of art and that's that's the ones that i've got into is that i've i bought some of the damien hurst nfts and like one of them actually physically arrived it's way too big it's useless but it was cool that you have a deed that can then be redeemed for an actual physical piece of art. And there was another series I was in called Tunny Money, mm. an artist called Peter Tunney. I fortunately won one of the silver bars, which then came with a physical piece of artwork. And the other series of similar art that he released are going for 
30 to 50 thousand dollars and i got that for free from yeah. winning this nft and like that to me is like a cool way there is there is a use case yeah. that, that's the nice thing they, they can be used for good i have this friend photographer in taiwan taiwan's a beautiful landscape and wildlife and he once sent me like a little meme he did of him selling his first pictures he does amazing wildlife photography and sold it for like a hundred bucks for a picture to someone and now he's selling them for an eth and a half and he's using the money to found uh, an animal sanctuary in Taiwan for for stray animals, right? So there is there are wonderful use cases for NFTs. It's just that people care more about making a quick buck and yeah. having their own ape named after them. them. There's there's also the there's the utility and there's also the gamification. So there's like there's ways that you can gamify almost anything via NFTs. Like you can make e-commerce or of a game-based like activity, or you know, there's there's wide range after after that. So I think it's like the gamification and the utility together is going to be the secret source 100%. for like NFTs. Hundred percent. There's something that I don't see the point. Nike did this. I think they started in Germany. You get the Nike NFT of your shoes. That's right. And then you can go to the store, and when you get the physical product, the NFT is burned, mm-hmm. it's destroyed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's kind of weird. That's similar yeah. to the Damien Hurst yeah. NFT yeah. deeds. Yeah, and he yeah. Just did the same yeah. as well. So there was like the first one, and that I kind of feel like they maybe hadn't decided what they were going to do with it. And they said like, okay, well you can burn it, and then we'll send you some like uh, items of clothing. One of which I'm not getting until December, which I was a bit annoyed about. I'm <laughs> the, like, the so most, you haven't even ordered it. Yeah. <laughs> the most worrying thing for me about NFTs was this Constitution DAO in America. Yeah, and. As they bought this copy of the American Constitution, they had a group chat and thought, what are we going to do with it? And they voted on it and they voted to destroy the original so that their NFT will go up in price. (laughs) So I'm going to have an NFT of the elegant marbles and then I'm going to smash the marbles so that my NFT... Finally. (laughs) Give them back, you know. There is a danger to, uh, to abuse in NFTs because suddenly they become monetized they're worth X amount of ETH. And if you then lose the original, then they're going to be infinitely more yeah, valuable. Totally, and th- there's yeah. so much uh, potential for abuse in NFT. I mean, it's like the way that artwork goes up when artist dies, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. It's one of those kind of things that- We should, looked at this closely at Apple and in, I did some investigation to the, the criminal investigation that's going on. The most devastating one is that, uh, you know, we say anything you can own in the world, you can own as an NFT. It turns out there's human trafficking going on. There are images of, of women from Ukraine and Russia sold, traded as an NFT, so then you own them as a sex slave. And that they found the people behind it, they got arrested, but there's so much potential to make the most horrible things, like you know, weapons trade and human trafficking and modern slavery. If you all put that on the blockchain as an NFT, that's it's ridiculous potential yeah. for for calamity. Well, well at least it, Well, yeah. I mean, I guess then it would uh, stop being a grey market, though. At least be like out on the open somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you could get onto that chain, you could probably see all the transactions that took place. But, yeah. 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 I mean, you just get Liam Neeson on that blockchain. You'd be Liam Neeson in glasses, like, very specific kills, steals on smart contracts. I'm, I'm going block to block. Yeah. Shouldn't joke about that. No, it is awful, but it's also got so much potential for good. It's just, we are, people like to say we are early. I don't think we are early. We are in the middle of the fight already about the value and the ethics of 
of blockchain. And yeah. I think we, have, we are past the initial uh, naive phase of thinking that blockchain is a solution for everything. And you still get these courses at universities where you get people saying, oh, the biggest revolution of solidity, smart contracts, it's such a revolution. That's not, I've been there, done that, okay? We, we already know what's wrong with the Ethereum and the smart contract model, right? Yeah. But for most people, they, they, they haven't even started to grasp that. So we have a, a huge gap in knowledge, not generational, but simply people who get into the space, they need to spend a few years there. Half of them, they fall in love with the first project that's not Bitcoin, Right, yeah, <laughs> and most of them stick with Bitcoin because yeah. they can't grasp the rest of it, right? <laughs> and then you, we want to get them on constellation. You think I've got my work cut out for me, really? Yeah. I mean, that's the educational piece, isn't it? It's quite long. I, I always think that it's the key. Yeah. Education is the key to everything, yeah. and and we need to get government involved. We need to get university involved, doing more than just explain what Bitcoin is and what is a blockchain. You know? Yeah. I think it's quite interesting you mentioned that sort of like every, everybody thinks that a blockchain is going to solve everything and it's, it's actually not. it's more the case that a blockchain can say solve a very specific use case very well in a way There is that, a perfect use for relational databases that mm -hmm. are not blockchain they, they have their uses there is a use of having uh, a leg what we now call legacy system and I think very soon we will look back at blockchain and say that was a good idea while it lasted and it's now a legacy system. But now we've moved on to the next iteration of technology. Mm. And the, dial up and broadband, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, who remembers dial up, right? Look at us now, everywhere we go, we're online on our mobile device. Mm. It's amazing what we do. If I lose my phone here in London, I'm completely lost. I couldn't get a cab, I couldn't yeah. pay for dinner. I couldn't do nothing. <laughs> It's funny you say that we, uh, at my previous company, ShareThrough, they did a survey um, where they, I think it was a few hundred millennials, and it was like, would you rather lose your little finger forever or your phone? <laughs> and I, two in three people said they'd rather lose their little finger. I think the <laughs> first told, yeah, the first you time told me cloud that, I was like, yeah, 100%. Like, I wouldn't be able to get an Uber home tonight. Yeah. I'd be screwed. But it, I'd, I don't need my finger to get home. Have yeah. you had your finger cut off? It hurts. <laughs> I imagine it hurts. Yeah, but how much would it hurt if I never had my phone ever again? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a backup in the cloud. Just get a fucking new phone and download the backup. Have a phone ever again. Oh, okay. Sorry. I mean, okay. <laughs> now, now we'll Take all the fingers. Yeah, you know, you pay attention to this ridiculous hypothetical situation. <laughs> <laughs> the only the only problem I can envisage there's, there's is, rules uh, to this. is that I put my little finger at the bottom of my phone to hold it, and so maybe I'd actually rather lose if the one were, next to it. Either, either pop it. <laughs> yeah. it would be a different question if they cut off the thumb, because then yeah. I wouldn't be able to use the phone yeah, exactly, right, yeah. properly. <laughs> well, you'd just be using it like an older person. An older person. <laughs> Be on a big font before you know where you are. <laughs> well, I think it's a good hour there. So I think we will wrap up. Thank you very much, Martin, for joining us. It's been an amazing <laughs> show. We've covered a great breadth of topics, I think, which yeah. I wasn't expecting. So yeah, thank you very much for joining us. I'll have you on again anytime. Yeah, it's, it's been, been really fun. Good, mate. Thank you very much. Awesome.